Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and what else is there left to do but dot the I's, cross the T's, and brush away the chalk pentagrams? It's the end, the very end, of another year in horror. A banner year, and we've all spent enough time rhapsodising how good things are for us macabre folks, how the genre is booming and richer than ever, and we don't need to make those generalisations again, do we? No. This little last gasp of an episode is all about the specifics, and specifically, my favourite horror books of 2023. Now, usually I'm confined to the highlights of books actually featured on the show, but this year I actually managed to find time to cast my net a little bit wider, and I read some things that I didn't even talk about. Shock. I mean, weirdly... Quite a few of them made this list, which should basically teach me a thing or two about how I plan the schedule in future. I'm just going to roll on through the books that truly floated my boat. I don't script this or edit it, because frankly I've done enough of that in recent weeks. So apologies for the copious ums and ahs as I try to corral my own thoughts about books that I may not have read in 10-12 months. Oh, and I've got a weird throat thing. Could be COVID. It is Christmas after all. That's what you get at Christmas. So, in short, bear with me. I'm really selling the next hour of audio, aren't I? (laughs) Um, Speaking of selling, here's the soft coercion. If you like this show and want to support it and help it continue, consider signing up to be a patron. All contributions really help me make this thing happen and you get tons of extra stuff in return for quite a small amount of money. Just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod and sign up. And sincerely, the biggest thanks. But now, for one last time in this benighted year, come with me, pull up a chair, pour yourself a drink, and let's revel in our favourite scary stories. Let's talk scared. Okay, so to start this list as all good lists should start, with a caveat, (laughs) I tend to use the term horror-ish when doing these end-of-year countdowns, because frankly, I can't be bothered debating the boundaries of genre to such an extent. And on Talking Scared, we extend the Church of Horror to a cathedral. Knock out the knave, the confession bots can get to fuck. We make space for a pew and a place for every kind of macabre fiction. So don't at me with, that isn't horror, because it's never a worthwhile conversation. There are so many better things to talk about. That said, (laughs) just immediately contradict my own point, um, there are three books that I must mention, that do clearly fall outside of what I think most reasonable people would consider horror. But they also happen to be three of the best books that I've read in years and years. Some were on the show, one wasn't. um, But basically, I don't want to not mention them. And I also don't want to take up a third of the list with books that only have a slightly tenuous place there. You get where I'm going with this. Um, and I think you'll guess what some of these books are. The first one is Daniel Krause's Whalefall. Um, this is the one that other people have had on their best horror of the year. And I had this conversation with CJ Lead 
about how I don't consider it horror and she does. That was on the State of the Horror Nation episode two weeks ago. Um, I don't consider it horror. I don't really have an articulate reason for why because it's certainly horrifying. It's about a man who gets swallowed by a whale and has to deal with, well, everything that would entail. Digestive juices and being stabbed by squids that get swallowed. It's brilliant. But yeah, for me, it's it's not horror in the way that I don't think something like Jurassic Park is horror. Um, can't really pursue that much further because it's probably a flawed argument to begin with. But either way, I'm talking about it. So so who really cares? It's a masterpiece. It's up there with like Hemingway and Steinbeck, but with a speculative twist. It's so moving. It's one of the best books I've ever read about father-son relationships. And you know what I'm like about animals. Any animal in peril and I suddenly care 10 times as much. And when Jay gets swallowed by the whale, I think I'm supposed to be primarily concerned for him. But in fact, it's it's the whale that I want to survive the most. It's just a beautiful poem of a novel. Um, and at first, I'll be honest, I was a little bit frustrated by it because it's so poetic and lyrical. I was a bit pushed away by the prose. I was like, oh God, is this all hype and, and 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 jazz hands and no actual substance? But oh my God, you just get sucked in to the point where I have rarely cared more about the, a man and the thing he's trapped inside. It's wonderful. The second book on this outliers list is Justin Cronin's The Ferryman. Now this is the one of all the books I've read the year that I think is the least horror. It's a kind of utopian sci-fi, if anything. Difficult one to discuss because it's so dependent on a sleight of hand and misdirection that I don't want to give much away. Um, but it's it's bathed in the tonal qualities of golden era science fiction. It's basically about a, a, a civilization that maybe this world, maybe another, maybe post-apocalyptic, you're not quite sure. And it's paradise. Um, and when people die, uh, well, no, when people are about to die, they get on a ferry and they are taken to this island um, to have a wonderful time. And then things happen where people come back from the island and it's a lovely circle of life and all of that. And of course it's not. Of course there's an awful mystery behind it all. And we must get to the bottom of it. So it's it's part The Matrix, part Total Recall, part Logan's Run, type, part Silent Running. Any classic sci-fi you can think of is in there. And I think I said at the time to Justin that it, it takes all of those reference but never feels derivative. It's both completely of a genre in every way, but also it feels unique. And I don't get how he's done that. And it it's a book that there's a certain moment where... I just felt my imagination soar. And so few books can do that to me. Like the wonder of some of the revelations when you realise what's going on. Oh my God, it's just a beautiful book. Justin Cronin is quite rightly known for the Passage Trilogy, which is horror. This one isn't. It's easily his best book. If you like the Passage, this kicks it into second place with a plum. The Ferryman is just lovely and what a weird thing to recommend on the best horror of the year podcast um it has an existential dread to it which the macabre monsters will enjoy but it's a joyous book and i beseech you to read it great book to read at christmas as you're going into a new year in in search of renewed optimism uh, yeah but then the flip side of that 
Aren't I doing well here? I've talked for this long without saying too many ums and ahs or coughing or spluttering or anything. Look, you go, Neil. <laughs> the flip side of all the optimism is Stephen Markley's The Deluge, which, I'll say it again, is the best book I've read written in the 21st century. Oh my God, this book is... This book would top my list of best books read in pretty much any year. Um, and I've already said a lot about it, but it's been a while because I had Steve on the show right back at the start of the year. Um, and, you know, I want to talk about him again, right? Because even Stephen King said, when I asked him, yes, you should read Stephen Markley's The Deluge. It's a thousand page whopper about the next 40 years of speculative future history in which we're tangling with climate change, surveillance capitalism and increasingly oppressive politics. It's horrifying. It's one of the scariest books I've ever read because it's like it's taking what's happening in the media, the, the proper media, not Fox News. Um, it's taking what's happening and it's making a horror story from it and it's lacing it with characters you care about experiencing real things that haven't quite happened yet but are on the very cusp of coming true. It's awful, thrilling, dramatic, moving all of those things. It's the stand if Captain Trips was a very real threat hurtling towards us. Just brilliant, and I want everyone to read it. The Deluge by Stephen Markley. Right, first up, though, in my actual list of 10 horror novels, maybe a slightly left-field choice, because it's not normally my vibe, uh, not, not normally my tone of wanting horror with heart. But it's Abnormal Statistics by Max Booth III. Um, and if it has a heart, it's the blackest, most desiccated heart you can imagine. It's a collection of short stories. Um, and there's not a one that's happy, let's put it that way. Max Booth writes with this ruthless precision. He, he doesn't blink. He doesn't look away from the worst things that can happen in a story when you think oh my god he's not going to write that is he that's not going to happen yet that that happens and it happens in a really grisly way that you get the impression max is enjoying um i talked about this being a book that didn't care about your feelings that actually wanted to hurt you and it does but it's not actually about blood and gore and extremity it's often about these stories are linked by a sense of uneasy pessimism and and sort of grey disquiet. So the opening novella, Indiana Death Song, is a horrid little novella, actually, inspired in part by Max's own childhood, by The Truman Show and, and Max's anxieties as a kid about that film. Um, it features some very grim tooth horror. And it's just a weird off-kilter, disconcerting, disorienting story of time spent living in a casino hotel with a very, very creepy janitor. Um, and that story, the questions opened in that story, are somewhat closed by this really quirky, cool little story that ends the collection called List of Familicides in the United States. And that takes the form of a mock wiki article it's really well done on the page and it ties into it in in some ways explains that opening novella so it's a neat little trick that max pulls 
There's others. I mean, there's too many stories to talk about all of them. There's one called Disintegration is Quite Painless, and that title should give you some sense of the tone of these tales. Um, that's a sort of lovely little Lovecraftian story of monsters in a small town. It's sort of a riff on Lovecraft's The Outsider, in a way. It's sort of Grant Wood with monsters. Uh, I like that one. There's a, a story called Scraps, which may be my personal favourite. It's about a late night diner cook and these strange feral children that he takes to feeding and taking care of. It's it's a, it's ruthless and cruel. As is a story called Every Breath is a Choice, which is just the vilest thought experiment of, of the worst kind. I mean, do not read this story over Christmas. Don't read this book over Christmas. This is not the time to read this book. Don't read it in January. It will set your year off on the wrong foot. Read it in March when the nights are getting lighter and there's there's hope in the air. Or read it now if you want, but it will mess you up. It's, it's not nice, but it is brilliant. My favourite single author collection of the year, Abnormal Statistics by Max Booth. At number nine, Holly by Stephen King. Um, Stephen King doesn't need my patronage to sell books, but I want to shout this one out because it's a book that I've really been on a journey with. So when I was first reading it, I enjoyed it a surprising amount because I really don't love the Holly Gibney character. And then after I'd read it, I was a bit more ambivalent. I was a bit like, hmm. Not sure it really did it for me. And then as the months have gone on, I found myself thinking about it more and more. And what a fun romp it is. How much it it really just (laughs) loves playing with its tropes of of old people cannibalism, uh, which is a fun thing to put in any book, I suppose. Um, But it's, it's certainly the book in which Holly becomes most of her own character. She's not a device in this book. She's not the deus ex machina who gets floated in to have a a certain perspective on the crime. She is a rounded character with her own inner drama to deal with. And that's that's great. It follows on from the outsider in which she was also, I think, much better than in the Mr. Mercedes trilogy. But the outsider is not a Holly Gibney book. Holly, you can tell by the title, is. And it's just grown on me. And I'm looking forward to reading it again pretty soon because I think when I read it the first time, I knew Stephen was coming on the show. I was reading in a very intense, like, must-think-of-questions sort of way. So I want to go back and read it again and, and enjoy it more. Um, because, yeah, I, I, it's just grown on me very much. The villains are brilliantly mundane. They're not, they're not the true not from Doctor Sleep, you know. They're not some supernatural demons. They're just kind of old people who don't really give a shit and don't really care about you and, you know, they're... they're <laughs> They're the worst kind of boomer, I suppose. Uh, yeah, it's just a fun book. It really is. And it, it goes into places you don't expect it to go in terms of who dies, how cruelly they die, and, and what happens to them. And I always like when when King doesn't pull his punches because it's always a bit of an ambush. Because I always think of him as somebody who's deep down quite cuddly. And then when he goes, oh, no, 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 no. We're going to eat that kid's brain. You're like, okay, Stephen, good on you. <laughs> so yeah, Holly, one of the most unvarnished, straightforwardly fun, heart-on-sleeve, pulpy romps I've read this year. 
At number eight, it's S.A. Cosby's All the Sinners Bleed. And this is the one where people may go, well, that's not horror. That's a crime thriller. And frankly, I don't care because it horrified me. Really did. Saying this isn't horror is like saying seven isn't horror. And that features a man who's killed by dildo or a man who's starved to death for a year on a bed, right? It's horror. Silence of the Lambs is horror. All the sinners bleed is horror. But it's also more than that. And how often do I say that? Oh, it's more than horror. But it is. It's a story of a community struggling with all kinds of aggressions from the the minor and the passive to the full-throated and ritualistic. It's about the, the first black sheriff in a small Virginia town called Charon County, which I think is just a lovely resonant name. Um, and it's one of those places that's sleepy, but tensions simmer underneath, particularly racial tensions. And one of the things that S.A. Cosby does so well in this book is, is write about how racial tensions are often actually hand in hand with economic tensions and other kinds of social tensions. And it's 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 not in any way a simplistic take on a community in turmoil. It looks at the realistic ways in which these dynamics and these demographs work. It's very, very good. And he he channels all of that through a really sort of genre-heavy plot that begins with a school shooting and then goes into darker places than I imagined to do with serial killing, the worst kind of serial killing. Um, the kind of serial killing that you would find in a book by, say, John Connolly, one of his Charlie Parker novels, where the murders themselves are so baroque and ornate and ritualistic that they are undoubtedly horror. Um, Titus Crown, the sheriff, is just a brilliant character. He's kind of a little bit Jack Reacher. He's massive, a little bit, you know, Charlie Parker. One of those landmark detectives could be a landmark detective. If 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 Sean Cosby was going to write more books about this character, I would be first in line to read them. But it does finish with a sense that perhaps Titus's story is told. And that in itself is quite a nice nice thing. It's it's tied up with a bow. Um so it bounces between this human drama this political community thriller and this just horrendous series of crimes. Um, I think I've mentioned Seven. I've mentioned Sounds of the Lambs. The text I would compare it to most easily is season one of True Detective, which again balanced that the normal and the criminal in such a way as to make the criminal seem almost otherworldly. There are demonic forces flitting around the edges of this book, even though they never actually penetrate it. Um, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. I mean, what, what everyone knows by now, right? S.A. Cosby's great. I was late to the party. This is the first book of his that I've read, so I need to catch up. But if you haven't read S.A. Cosby, I'm not the expert, but I would say start with All the Sinners Bleed because it's just absolutely magnificent. Great, great modern Southern Gothic. At number seven, a book that everyone was telling me to read and I was frankly too nervous to until right at the end when I had to abest the year list and I thought, well, I'd, I'd better read it. <laughs> and that's The Boys in the Valley by Philip Fracassi. Now, it's about demonic possession. And you know, well, if you listen to this show, you know, I don't do well with that trope. It terrifies me. I don't know why. We won't go into it again. But 
This book, if not a corrective to that terror, is at least a book that made me think sometimes maybe a story is good enough that it's worth confronting that terror. Because Christ, this book is good. I mean, anyone who listened to this best of the year last year will know that I I put Phil Fracassi's A Child Alone With Stranger right at the top. Because Phil Fracassi does the horror with heart thing better than anybody working today. Anybody. I will put my hat on that. He is the best at writing horror with characters that you care about deeply, but that you don't feel are safe. And this one goes way further than A Child Alone With Strangers. So The Boys in the Valley is basically set in a turn-of-the-century orphanage. And I mean turn-of-the-century like 1905, not not 15 years, not 20 years ago. God, I'm old. Um, St. Vincent's Orphanage for Boys, this kind of brutal austere catholic run orphanage where these 30 boys are having a fairly rough time already and then one night some people arrive and one of them has got like weird arcane symbols cut into his flesh very clive barker turns out he's possibly infested with demons and 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 they begin to spread and and most of the story we are following peter barlow this well, he's the, I think he's the oldest of the orphans. Is he the oldest? Maybe. If I'm wrong, forgive me. But he's one of the best child protagonists I've read in ages. Well, adolescent protagonist. Beaten only by someone else later in this list today. Um, but, you know, the, the possession spreads. I've spoken to Philip, who told me that he was kind of trying to keep some residue of thinking is it really possession could you see it in a non-supernatural way it's a stretch some pretty mad stuff happens and then it becomes a bit lord of the flies where boys and priests start taking sides um deaths are awful and what's cool about this what i don't really get the trick behind is that it's not particularly a slow burn book like the demon arrives and the shit hits the fan but somehow Phil Fracassi has made us already care deeply. And as things get worse and worse and worse, you really don't know who's going to live and die. And it just becomes well, turmoil and, and torment, especially with people like me who who really don't want to truckle with demons. Um, it's a wonderful book. Just wonderful. Again, I had to read it in a real rush so I could include it in the Esquire best of list. And, well, now in this one. Um, and So I'm going to read it again, maybe, when I've I've got more time and I can... Will, will that be scarier if I have to think about the demons? Will that be scarier? I don't know. Either way, believe the hype about the boys in the valley because it is frightening as hell. But oh my God, you care. That last entry was a little bit scatty and all over the place. I got a bit overexcited. So let's let's calm it down, Neil. Let's be more moderate and modulated in our approach to these titles. At number six... It's the last book I read in 2023. Well, the last book from 2023 that I read this year. And it's Where the Dead Wait by Ali Wilkes. Now, I'm including this because it was published in December in the US, but it's not published for a few weeks in the UK. But I'm still including it in the list. Um, Ali Wilkes, you may know, wrote a book called All the White Spaces, which came very high 
on my list in 2022. Um, and she's back now with Where the Dead Wait, which on surface level could sound like retreading the same ground because All the White Spaces was about a, an expedition gone wrong to the Antarctic in the early 20th, early 20th century. God, I get so mixed up with that. Um, the Golden Age of Exploration. Um, just after the First World War, yeah. Um, in Where the Dead Wait, again, we go back in time, a bit further back in time to the Victorian era for an expedition to the Polar North. And it's a, a two-tiered timeline. So it takes place in the 1860s when Captain Day, um, well, he's not a captain at the time, but when the, the, the latterly Captain Day is part of an expedition to the north that goes horribly wrong and ends in people eating first their shoes and then each other. Got to go some survival cannibalism. And then 20 years later in the 1880s, the, dis the now disgraced Captain Day has to go back to the north to try and locate the ship of one of his crewmates from the earlier, earlier expedition who has gone missing. Um, and, well nothing good happens from that point onwards. It's a story of starvation and privation and cold and madness and murder and very fleshy ghosts. Yeah, there are ghosts up there in the icy waste, but they're not nice, neat, see-through spectral things. They are the rotting bodies of people who have been consigned to the ice. But they're not just that. I mean, you'll hear in my conversation with Ali in a few weeks that this is a book in which haunting has so many layers to it because there's a whole angle about homosexuality in the Victorian era and in particular on these kind of expeditions. And Day is haunted not only by the potential ghost of his shipmates, but also by his his intimacy with them and, and his own inability to acknowledge his sexuality, all of these things. It's an angst-ridden book. There could be a wonderful Freudian analysis written of it, um, but it's brilliant. No one does kind of grueling endurance horror like Ali Wilkes. I mean, I call Michelle Paver the goat of adventure horror. I actually think Ali Wilkes is better at getting to the human horror of these kind of expeditions. Where Michelle Paver's fiction is quite rarefied, it's quite ornate and Edwardian. Ali Wilkes is in she's invested in the guts and the viscera. And things like which parts of a of a human corpse you eat first for the greatest nutritional value. That's the kind of thing we're dealing with. But also there's this almost sort of early modernist psychological fragmentation they're very psychological books they're very layered they're very loose and you've got to work out what's happening as you're reading because they don't hold your hand where the dead weight is both immediately satisfying as a horror story and really wonderfully challenging as a literary piece of fiction it's a dense book you've got to take your time with you cannot rush through this at all but it captivated me i think it's I think it's her best book of the two, and I loved the first one. Um, and it's a book I think will require rereading, and you'll always find something new. It's it's really, really very good if you've got the time to devote to something that that demands your time. Where the Dead Wait by Ali Wilkes. It's very, very good. So we're into the top half of the rankings now, and this is where things get serious. 
At number five is a book I, I didn't feature on the show, but read in pretty much one sitting on a long-haul flight, and it, it blew me away. And it's Mave Fly by C.J. Lead. I think a lot of people have read this, and I think a lot of people love this in the way that I do, but I was not prepared for it. So it's a sort of self-aware... Rewriting is too too strong a word, but um, riff, I suppose, on Ellis's American Psycho. It's a, a gender swapped American Psycho. But I think that off-made comparison does a disservice to C.J. Leeds' book because I am the first person to scream about the values of American Psycho. I think it's fantastic. I often say it's one of the funniest books, if not the funniest book I've ever read. Make of that what you will. Um but Mayfly manages to be just as bleakly nihilistic and blackly funny, but also have a character who is in and of themselves interesting, which is the thing that I don't think you can say about Patrick Bateman. The point of Patrick Bateman is that he's a void at the heart of that book. He's a nexus of violence and, and awful things, but he's not a person, right? He's self-avowedly not a person. Whereas Mayfly... But the character and the novel is is actually, it's not redemptive, but you care about this woman. And no matter how utterly dreadful the things she does are, and trust me, there are some dreadful things. There's still a little bit of humanity flickering. You know, the embers of a person are still there. And that, in many ways, that makes the book easier to read, but also harder to read because... No, it's easy to read because the characters are more captivating, but it's harder to read because terrible things happen and are done by them. Um, I've waffled a bit there. Essentially, <laughs> to take it back to the start, Mayfly is a, a book about a a young woman living with her, her grandmother, who's a sort of ageing starlet, Sunset Boulevard type in LA. She works by day as a <laughs> cosplay princess at what is Disney World, but I don't think he's ever called Disney World, if I remember rightly. Uh, which is funny in itself, because this homicidal maniac is working with kids all day and taking sweet princess photos. Um, but then, increasingly, she gets pulled into this certain social circle in LA that just drives her to madness and violence and beyond. And it's a weird book, because unlike American Psycho, which is batshit from the start, Mayfly kind of reads like a nihilistic... Bridget Jones' diary <laughs> for about two-thirds of its running time, and then it just descends into this orgiastic violence that actually shocked me. And I'm easily scared, but not easily shocked by violence and gore and extremity, but this one shocked me because it ambushed me from nowhere. And there's one particular scene in which a character who you, you kind of have contempt for and, and kind of despise is... Well, all I'll say is she's taken into a basement from which she does not return. And the implications of what could be done to her are so bad that you think that's not actually going to happen. And then it does. And and the, the narrative just picks up in the aftermath of what's been done to this person. Oh, my God, it's sickening. But all the while, you still kind of like Maeve. Um, it's a wonderful book. Not normally the kind of thing I gravitate towards. I read it on a whim on the way to StokerCon and I told the story about me embarrassing myself in front of CJ by kind of rapturously talking about the erotics of it. But it's wonderful and it's got me incredibly excited for CJ Leeds' career. Incredibly so. Her next book, American Rapture, sounds like a real challenging go-for-the-throat horror novel that 
only a few people could write and pull off properly. And on the back of Mavefly, I think CJ is the person to write that kind of fiction. Between her and Eric LaRocca, horror that runs the the razor's edge between vileness, violence and eroticism. I think that vein of horror is strong now and into the future. So, Mavefly by CJ Leed. That's at five. At four, it's a book that I thought would be good, but exceeded my expectations by magnitudes. And it's Camp Damascus by Chuck Tingle. So, like many people who come to Chuck Tingle late, I had no idea what to expect of his fiction. Because, well, well, if for some reason you managed to miss out on Chuck Tingle till now, haven't listened to the episode with him, know nothing about him, go just type in Chuck Tingle into Amazon and see the books that come up. Um, and you will not expect him to have written one of the most heartfelt and and just gloriously entertaining horror novels of the year. Um, Chuck Tingle is an enigma, a man who is never seen without his his pink bag on top of his head to obscure his identity. His biography is a work of of narrative mania that I, I don't know where truth begins or ends. It's fascinating. Um, and he wrote this book, Camp Damascus, about the, quote, most effective gay conversion camp in America set in the hills above Neverton, Montana. Um, it's a community that's almost entirely prostrate before the will of the religious folk running this conversion camp. And into this, we meet Rose Darling, Chuck's protagonist, who has, well, you get the impression, been through the conversion camp and quite the other side and is very, belongs to... You know, lives with very straight-laced parents and never questions any of the tenets of the church. Uh, and then she starts, well, vomiting up flies. That's how it starts. And then she starts seeing this figure, this hideous female shadowy figure called Patched. Um, and I won't go into exactly what Patched is, because that would be a spoiler. But I will say that she is the source of some of the most stand-up straight scary scenes I've read all year. There are certain scenes where Patchy just stands her in the corner and then all of a sudden just dashes towards, well, towards Rose, but towards you, the reader. And when I spoke to Chuck, he, he said that he always writes his books from a cinematic standpoint. And the book is written like a brilliant horror movie. The jump scares are there on the page already. They don't even need to be converted for the screen. Um, but so you've got the scary stuff and then from there memory starts to unearth the truth starts to be revealed and and it becomes a quite an inspirational journey towards self-love and self-acknowledgement and in in a relatively thin book chuck manages to get all sorts of scares all sorts of world building but also this this deep sense of character and and purpose and and again i'm repeating myself but that journey towards self-acknowledgement that that's quite a feat to fit into a less than 300 page novel but chuck does it and the last thing i'll say for people who just want pure horror the man's imagination rivals clive barker in the just the elegance and intricacy of the horrors he thinks up. I will just give you one to, to give you an idea, but there is a vision of hell in which 
A human being has basically been turned into a harp with strings of nerve endings being played by demons. I mean, I'll let you think about that as we head into the new year. Consider When you're singing Old Lang Syne, think about that. A nerve ending harp. How lovely. <laughs> but yeah, so it balances hearts. That word I use too much, but it's valid. It balances that with just genuine, like, uh, toe-curling horror. Great characters. A lovely vein of humour. It's just a brilliant book. It's like a complete, little, compact horror novel that has everything you need for a really good time in this genre. It proves that both horror and love is very much real. At number three, oh, it's hotting up. Are you starting to think, oh, what could it be? What what are his three top picks? I wonder who's guessed this correctly. Pause now, write down what you think they are. See if you're right. Okay. At number three, and I'm delighted to say this because the author is a friend of mine now. Um, at number three, it's Nestlings by Nat Cassidy. His vampire adjacent book, if we're going to abide by his description. It's a vampire book now. Get over it. <laughs> um, it's a brilliant vampire book. I mean, self-avowedly a mixture of Salem's Lot and Rosemary's Baby. And you see the DNA of both in the book, very much so. But as I've written and said elsewhere, despite those references, it is its own story. It's an alchemy that gives birth to something new. But here's the basic premise. Reed and Anna are this kind of beleaguered young couple with a, a new baby who've had a rough time and very much based on Nat's own time during the early years of COVID uh, and listen to my most recent conversation with him for the detail on that. I don't know how the man's still standing, let alone smiling. Um, but the characters, Reed and Arna, down their luck and they win this, well, competition to get a property in this oh-so-exclusive New York apartment complex, the Deptford. Um, they win in a lottery. If that's a real thing, I don't know, but they move in. And right from the start, it starts to play on them as people and them as a couple. Um, Anna seems slightly more ambivalent towards the property than Reed because she is newly disabled. She's in a wheelchair and having to to accommodate that and navigate that change and living in the penthouse of a, a multi-story building isn't the easiest. Reed, meanwhile, is seeing the building as the sort of manifestation of all his hopes and dreams uh, and it's, so it's really cheering him up. So there are tensions there right from the start. Add into that, you know, postpartum and the fact that there is a, a sort of slightly feral woman living next door who's kind of like... the kind of reminds me of the, of the thing... They find in the cellar in Barbarian. Let's just say that. Um, if you haven't seen that film, by the way, Barbarian, go watch it. They make a weird companion piece for me, Barbarian and Nestlings. Not sure why, but they feel of a piece. Anyway, I digress. Um, that's all going on. And then Reed kind of discovers the inhabitants of the building who live in a kind of I don't know, a mirror building on the other side of the lobby. Like, rich metaphor there for that doubling and, and, and severing and reflection stuff. Um, and he gets embroiled in the world of the inhabitants, which is much weirder than just vampires, shall we say. And I won't spoil anything else that happens from there. Um, what I will say is, it's a book that manages, again, to pack a lot in. This is my new favourite thing. I used to love long, long novels. What I'm really admiring now is people who can write 
mid-length novels and get a lot in there without it feeling rushed. And Nat does. It's a book about anti-Semitism and the, the Jewish experience, particularly the Jewish New York experience, because this is very much a New York novel. And he and I talked a lot about that. Um, it's about creative paralysis and, and creative cul-de-sacs and the freedom to create. That's a big part of the impulse behind read reaction to what's going on. Um, it's a, a book about parenthood and, and the ending manages to be sort of simultaneously heartbreaking and also darkly comedic. I'll, I'll let you make your own mind up on that. Um, but essentially, it is just horror the way they used to write them. This book would not feel out of place if you found it in an 80s paperback rack. Um, it feels very much like Ira Levin and King and Straub uh, and people like that writing that this kind of warm-hearted but, but ruthless and, you know, books that are willing to do nasty things within a slightly cosy tone. It's one of my favourite things. Um, it's really good. I loved it. It's an immersive book. I just care about these characters. It, it doesn't really have any bells and whistles. It doesn't make you think about things in experimental ways. It just tells a really, really good story in a really, really straightforward way that nonetheless, as you're thinking about all these little subplots that Nat sneaks in underneath the vampiric master plot, um, Nat really is starting to be a name to look out for. Between Mary and Nestlings, I cannot wait to see what he does next. I'm enjoying how he's, like almost one by one, taking all these tropes of American horror fiction and not just retelling them one by one but putting them together in interesting ways you know mary was ghosts and serial killers and reincarnation and stuff like that and this is kind of you know curse buildings and vampires and parent horror and yeah it's he's he's one to watch and i'm glad to call him my friend at two it's katriona ward's looking glass sound and in any other year, this would be the number one spot. Any year. Because it's one of the best gothic books. Better word than horror, I think. It's one of the best contemporary gothic books I've ever read. Sure, Cat says it's an ode to Stephen King. And I get that. Because it's a, a book about storytelling that's set in Maine. So, very Stephen King. I'd love to know what Stephen King thinks of this book. But actually, in truth, for me, it's much more of a piece with books. Well, with authors like Shirley Jackson and that that weird, almost like gothic novel of manners that she does so well, where there's a weird, awkward, brittle tone to proceedings. And you never quite know if people are telling the truth, what they really think, where there's that, that slipperiness and that, that veil over the exactitude of what's going on. It feels very much like that. And also um, brings me immediately to mind of a book like uh, Our, The Secret History by Donna Tartt. Forgot the name there. Again, that, that, that brittle, austere, distanced view of the world. Um, yeah, there's something between the Bennington College lot, you know, Donna Tartt, Ellis those kind of authors that Jay McInery that that feels like it fuels a lot of what Cat Ward's doing in Looking Glass Sound. Um, but the plot is almost impossible 
to synopsize in this kind of format because I can't tell you any details without ruining it, without spoiling it. And and it's too intricate a spider's web to ruin. It's a beautiful thing. And I don't want to pull on any strand and collapse the whole. What I will say is that I can talk about the first section in which a young boy, I think he's like early teens, Wilder, goes to stay with his family in the main coast and he makes friends with, with Nat and I've forgotten the other character's name. Harper, Nat and Harper. I've been talking for 45 minutes now, it gets hard. Uh, yeah, he meets this these two other kids called Nat and Harper. Nat is the kind of wild antithesis to Wilder's staid, kind of nervous persona. Harper is their shared love interest. And, and they have this idyllic summer on the, the main coast. Um, so far, so Stephen King again. Meanwhile, there's a criminal who may be a serial killer, may just be a peeping Tom, called the Dagger Man, who is roaming around this this region taking photos of people while they're asleep and you get the sense killing the occasional unwary victim so that's the first section that would be a novel in its own right from anyone else but all that is is the raw ingredients and then cat ward takes that and she tells and retells and interrogates and interprets different tellings of that story to, met, to kind of get to the point of what is truth. And the levels of metafiction get grander and grander and grander until at the end you feel like you're almost quite implicated in this story. Now, I know that's very vague, but you'll have to read it to get more of what I'm saying. But what, what I want to caveat is that I've made it sound there like quite an experimental House of Leaves type intellectual thing. It is. There's a lot to tease out, but it at its root is quite a romantic story about youth and love and growing up and finding out your own personal truth in the world. It is a story first and foremost before it's an experiment, but the experiment itself is so richly done and cleverly done that it never feels like an imposition. So if you're thinking, oh, I don't really want to read a book that's kind of, you know, making me think about fiction and all these bells and whistles, it's not that. It's, it's like a Hitchcock movie. It's like vertigo, you know, you can watch it and think, that's great. And you can think about it and be like, oh, okay, so that happened. And all oh, that, the mechanics there were interesting. And that technique was fascinating. And oh, what does it really mean? You know, you can enjoy it in both ways or both ways simultaneously. Just read the damn thing. Because I don't think there's been a cleverer book written since I started this podcast. And people need to be reading this book in decades. It should be on college courses. If you're teaching an introduction to contemporary gothic course, like I used to, this has to be the book that finishes off that chronology. Looking Glass Sound by Cat Ward. It's an absolute top-tier addition to American gothic. What else can I say? And at last, after much self-indulgence and enjoying the sound of my own voice, we reach the number one spot. The best book, the best horror book that I have read in 2023. And I think it's a choice that a lot of people will agree with because it's The Reformatory by Tanana Reeve Do, which is a book that has quite rightly set the horror world alight. I've yet to meet anybody or hear from anyone who doesn't adore this book. There's a number of reasons it's so good. First of all, it's a really interesting and quite moving piece of family archaeology, whereas Tanana Reeve went back into her own family tree 
and retold the semi-biographical story of her uncle, Robert Stevens, who went to the Dozier School for Boys, this infamous and brutal juvenile facility in Florida, where he died, um, and a lot of people died. And when you hear Tanana Reeve talk on the show, she talks about the survivor's stories and the horrors that were perpetrated in, in that school and schools like it. So it, it, there's nothing else I've ever read that's quite like it, where someone is plumbing their own family history for horrors that they've translated into fiction. Um, and all of that horror is there, all of that human horror. It's just that Tanana Reeve had ghosts um, because her version of Robert Stevens, who she's clear about, is not her uncle. It's more that she wants to give this character the life her, her uncle could have had if he'd survived. Um, the fictional Robert Stevens gets sent to the fictional reformatory for a, a well, un, for unjust reasons, shall we say, where his latent talent to see ghosts comes to the fore because this place is just covered in ghosts. Of course, it's so much horror has gone on there. Um, so he's trying to navigate that world and, and avoid the the lechery and the, the brutality of, of this, this horrendous governor. Um, more on him later. Meanwhile, on the outside of the prison walls, his sister Gloria is, is walking the tightrope of Jim Crow Florida in the 1950s, trying to get anyone to help Robert out of his predicament. And, and she meets characters both fictional and real. For, for me, it was a real introduction into the history and, and the, the personas of, of civil rights in this era. It's, yeah, it's a really interesting book for someone like me who lives in a different country and only knows this stuff at the most superficial level. Um, but let's talk about it as a horror novel, I suppose. That's what we're here for. Quite simply, it's one of the very best. Now, I think the canon of American supernatural fiction, let's be clearer, American ghost stories, modern American ghost stories, it's this for me. It's Hill House by Shirley Jackson. It's Ghost Story by Peter Straub. It's The Shining by King. It's Beloved by Toni Morrison. There are other titles I'm sure that would come to me, but they are the big four ghost stories that for me make up the, the firmament of the American supernatural tale. And the reformatory is that level. It's straight in there with a bullet at that level amongst those absolute totems of the subgenre. That's how good I think it is. Um, it's just a wonderful adventure. At times it feels like Shawshank mixed with um, The Body or, you, you know, Stand By Me. Um, at other times it feels like Beloved in, in the, just the horrors of the of the racism and the prejudice but it never revels in in black pain i mean that's been a topic that's been brought up on the podcast many times about how horror treats racism and and the the, the oppression of minorities and it never revels in that sort of thing it looks at it blankly and in the face and finds the heart in it it finds the the characters who come together to stand against this monolithic systemic horror one of the best characters is gloria and robert's grandmother who was just this indomitable old woman who has seen any shit you can show her and she will not back down there's one truly terrifying scene that's got nothing to do with ghosts it's to do with a well an, an exploitative 
police officer who has got awful intentions and <laughs> and Gloria's grandmother is there with a gun in her handbag should she need it and yeah that's the kind of characterization that makes the book sing it's not it's not the victims it's the people who who stand up and how often do i talk about that when it comes to my favorite horror stories you know they're about the people who stand up so it's been a banner year and in any other year a lot of these books could have taken the number one spot but nothing could possibly knock the reformatory off its perch because it's the most fun i have had reading a book for this podcast all year and the very very last line had me in floods of tears tanana reeve do is just the queen of this sort of thing and if you haven't read this one make it your first port of call to catch up with in 2024 Well, that was typically long-winded. <laughs> if you've stuck around here all the entries, I thank you. You must be very dedicated to either this show, to horror fiction as a whole, or maybe you're just desperately trying to avoid any last family members who are still in your house for the holidays. If they are, it's unreasonable and you can tell them to leave. <laughs> in fact, I'll do it for you. Um... I don't have much to say on this outro because I've talked enough in the last hour and my cough is getting worse. I'm always ill when I record this final episode of the year. Every year for the last three. I don't know what's going on. Maybe podcasting is bad for your health. Um, but it is good for the soul and the spirit if I believed in such things. And I want to thank you for sticking with me for another whole year. Or maybe you just found me last week. Welcome. Stick with me next year. If you keep listening... I'll keep making the episodes. I'm taking a short break from the show in February because it's that or just lose my mind completely after nearly 200 episodes without a week off. But there is a small capsule collection of episodes coming in January, starting with John Langan and hopefully finishing with the, the great Chuck Palahniuk. Then I'm back in March to start another year of horrific reading and delightful conversation. So thank you for all your support. No matter how often I say it's appreciated, I always worry that my true appreciation fails to come across fully. The show is growing and growing, little by little, step by step, and it's all because of you. Otherwise, I'd just be a very strange man talking to my dog about vampires and demons and haunted houses. And don't think I wouldn't do that if you all left me, but it is nice to know that you're there listening. Uh, the patrons there, if you want to chuck financial support at the show and get bonus episodes in return, it's patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. And thanks very much. Leave a review, if you could, on your podcast app of choice. And failing that, just keep spreading the word and, and pointing your horror-loving loved ones my way. I hope you all have a nice new year doing whatever you do, whether that's Jaeger bombs or reading the book. I know which I choose. Um, we got through this shitty year together, guys, and we did it in some semblance of style, or at least without setting fire to the place just yet. I'll be back on January 9th. Until then, form a circle, clasp hands, and sing that old New Year standard, Cthulhu for Torgan Relay. <laughs> Read good books, and remember... 
It's good to be scared.